Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi there, everybody. I'm Mario Sakura, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, season two. I am here with my new guest host, TJ Daw. Tamara and Maria Jose from last season have, uh, are, are occupied with some other projects. And quite frankly, the, uh, the structure of this podcast is a bit different. And TJ is the only person I could find who was willing to do this with me. So, uh, TJ, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, let, let me just give the, uh, a, a real quick, uh, overview of what we're trying to do here with this podcast, TJ, and then I'll ask you to introduce yourself. Okay. We are calling this season the director's season. And instead of looking at a single movie that demonstrates an element of the Enneagram, either a strategy or uh, one of the Enneagram types, we're going to look at, uh, what are we going to do, eight or nine, seven, eight, nine directors and look at their body of work and look for a specific Enneagram theme in it. We're going to be talking about Clint Eastwood today. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But uh, before we go any further, TJ, say hello and uh, please give a quick introduction of yourself to anybody who might have missed your appearance on uh, our, our show last season. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. I'm TJ Daw. I'm a writer and director and performer of Stuff on the Stage. And I divide my time between Vancouver, BC and Los Angeles. And I'm a big movie lover, always have been. Watching movies as a kid was a a pretty formative experience for me, and that's what sent me in the direction of the career that I've got now, even though I don't work in film. But I've got a huge appetite for movies, and as well for the Enneagram. I've been studying the Enneagram for 12 years. My partner Lindsay and I are both certified from the Enneagram Institute as teachers. We lead workshops in person and online, and we work with private clients, and we watch a lot of movies and TV together, and we're constantly talking about, like, what, what type do you think that character is? Or, you know, noticing Enneagram dynamics coming up. So this podcast is an excuse to watch or rewatch a bunch sure. of movies and jam on how they reflect the Enneagram strategies of the creators is particularly appealing to me. So uh, TJ is a real movie geek. Uh, so he's a man after my heart and uh, has an encyclopedic knowledge of movies and actors. And uh, and again, his knowledge of the Enneagram brings a really perfect combination for this, right? So again, this is different from what we did before. And we are looking, uh, we're not going to go as deep into each movie because our goal is to talk about four movies from each of the directors we're going to do and talk about what Enneagram-related themes we see, as well as what we see as the Enneagram type of the director, him or herself. And, we're, you know, we're going to kind of give supporting evidence for that, uh, why we believe that, and uh, talk about it. And uh, with Clint Eastwood, you know, we, we were talking uh, prior to the, the recording, TJ, about the, the massive body of work of Clint Eastwood. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, Clint Eastwood became a star as an actor in the 50s on TV and then directed his first movie in 1971. And 50 years later, he's still doing it. He's 91 years old and according to IMDb, has directed 45 feature films, an astounding number that would rank right up at the top of the list of anyone's list of the most prolific directors. Yes. And acted in how many movies? To re, uh, 72, I think. Uh, I think that included uh, some TV shows. Right? Uh, 72 acting credits. Yeah. Almost yes. all movies. Yes. He also has scored some of his movies. He is a uh, talented uh, jazz musician and uh, made one of his movies was about uh, Charlie Parker the jazz legend called Bird, a movie that I highly recommend, even though we're not going to be talking about it today. Uh, so I was trying to think before this uh, recording, TJ, uh, you know, because Clint Eastwood, so I'm, I'm a bit older than you. I've, I've got a decade or so on you. And I grew up 
during the Clint Eastwood era, right? So I was born in 63. By the time I was coming along, uh, by the time I was growing up, Westerns were still huge on in the movies, right? It was still one of the staples, but it was starting to fade out a bit. And it was transitioning from what I would think of uh, from the John Wayne era hero to the Clint Eastwood era hero. Right. And so the spaghetti westerns were out. Right. The man with no name series, uh, a few fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. Uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. I don't know how many times I saw those on TV as a kid. But Clint Eastwood was not really considered to be a serious person back in those days. Right. Uh, you know, he was associated with these spaghetti westerns, even though they were very profitable, made a lot of money and made him a star, they were they were kind of looked down upon by critics, right? Um, so uh, any observations on kind of the way that Clint Eastwood's, the perception of Eastwood changed over the years? Yeah, he started directing movies. So, and, and you know, that continues to this day is people don't think of action movies or genre movies in general as particularly artful or something to be taken seriously. They're, they're rarely nominated for awards, much less win awards. And that was a big part of Eastwood's career. So that didn't seem to bother him. He was just interested in telling stories. He was interested in telling stories that interested him. And even though he was known pretty much exclusively as an action star, the first movie he directed was not an action movie. It was called Play Misty for Me, in which he played a jazz DJ in a small town in Northern California, basically where he already lives. And he is the subject of the obsessive affection of a female fan. So this, it's not an action movie. It also, he doesn't give himself the most interesting role or the most active. He is threatened by a woman played by Jessica Walter, who became known and loved in Arrested Development. And the movie was a modest success. And then he just built on that and then has continued to direct movies that interest him as well as often acting in them, but not always. In a number of genres. So even though he was a worldwide star for his westerns and then for the Dirty Harry movies, he just continued making movies of all kinds. And the action ones often made more money. And to this day, that's probably what most people think of him as. But that was never the bulk of what he did. And, and in his 90s, he's continuing to make movies on many, many topics in many, many yeah. genres and styles. This is one of the things about Eastwood. So, so we believe, and I don't know if we've mentioned this or not, but we believe that Eastwood is a nine, right? Enneagram type nine, which we call striving to feel peaceful. Did you get a chance, TJ, to watch the documentary? Um, what was it called? Eastwood directs. Yeah. Um, and uh, let, let me just ask you briefly, was there any doubt in your mind after watching that, that Clint Eastwood was a nine? No kidding. A very, very clean case for him as a nine. Yes. One of the things you saw, and, and uh, almost everybody who's anybody was in that documentary talking about him. I mean, huge, huge stars that he has worked with in, all, in a lot of ways. And what they continually said about him is what's uh, such a nice, easygoing person he was, right? I mean, he was self-effacing. He was generous as an actor. He didn't put on airs. He liked to get in get it done, prided himself on not being a diva, you know, is known for doing things in two or three takes, right? He's not precious that way, right? It's like, not good enough, let's move on, you know, kind of thing. So if, if you really question whether or not Clint Eastwood is a nine, and some people do because of his movie persona, watch that documentary and there's just no no doubt about it thing that people don't really understand is that the character is not always the person right i mean he has such a distinct character in his films a, a distinct way of playing a character that people think it's him tell us about eastwood the actor eastwood the actor let's see he He's pretty consistent, like even when he's playing a character that is more aggressive. It was interesting to watch Dirty Harry again after not having seen it in a lot of years. Dirty Harry's famous for wielding a giant gun and yes. for saying a catchphrase before he kills somebody like action heroes do. But even then, even in that movie, the most archetypally aggressive character he's ever played, there was a lot of nine-ish elements in it, including the fact that there are scenes when he's being talked over by a superior and just lets it happen where he's mm -hmm. forbidden to do something, and instead of arguing, he just quietly goes and does it. 
or a scene early when he witnesses what is clearly the getaway car in a bank robbery and he's going to a diner. So he just has the cook phone the police and let them know that there's a robbery in progress <laughs> rather than storming in. And he only actually engages in action when the alarm rings and the thieves run out. And then, oh, and then he yes. says, oh, damn, pulls out his gun and then strides in and then engages in action. And that's probably the most aggressive character he's ever played. Yes. Yes. And, th and this is a consistent theme in his movies is he is a man pulled into action against his will very often. He just wants to be left alone. He just wants to feel peaceful. Right. But something around him happens. And it's almost like even though he is a he is the hero of most of his movies, he's almost like a passive character. Right. Being pulled along by events. Okay. Uh, so again, there's this very nine-ish quality, even when they are these sort of aggressive uh, characters. The other thing about Eastwood is that he is famous for stripping dialogue out of the screenplays, right? I mean, he, you know, it's famous for the screenplay will have, a, you know, a paragraph of dialogue and he'll scratch it all out and replace it with a grunt. Or something like that, right? Because he understands. And he learned this as a TV actor when he was doing Rawhide. He, he learned that the less the character said, the more impact the character could have. Right? And now, it helps when you have the presence of a Clint Eastwood. Right. And, and for me, I'll tell you, this is one of the things I noticed, particularly watching the first two movies we're going to talk about, The Outlaw Josie Wales and Unforgiven. The guy has a face that could be on Mount Rushmore, right? I mean, he just had, so Eastwood is six foot four, right? For those living outside the United States, that's tall, okay? <laughs> if you use the metric system. So he towers over most actors who, you know, uh, actors are famously short in Hollywood, right? Uh, so he's a, he's a tall man and he has a huge head. Right. I mean, if you look at the proportion of his head to his body, he's got a gigantic head. So it takes up a lot of screen. Right. When when he's when he's on screen and he's an extremely handsome guy and just has that structure of the face. I was you know, when I would watch the outlaw Josie Wales, I'm just looking. I'm thinking, man, look at that face. So that makes it easy to be somebody who can cut out dialogue because just being in the frame, he holds attention that way. Well, and part of the benefit of doing that is he's creating space for the audience to fill in the blanks. Yes. So he, you know, his first real movie role was in A Fistful of Dollars with Sergio Leone, who spoke no English. Eastwood spoke no Italian. And he said when he got on set, there was a lot of backstory about his mysterious character. And he, in a very subtle way, which I think is very nine-ish as well, kind of played Leone and said, B-movies explain everything to you. A pictures let the audience kind of fill in some of the details. And he got all of that backstory cut. So that character is entirely mysterious. And there's only one line of dialogue in the movie that even hints at what his motivation is. When this woman says, why are you doing this? And he says, I once knew a woman in your situation and there was no one to help her. That's it. You get one sentence yes. to construct yes. who this person is and where they You don't know his relationships. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know what his likes and dislikes are. He's just this mysterious person. And a lot of his movies end with ambiguous endings. Yes. He doesn't tell you, and the hero wound up with the girl, and he went back yes. to the place. It's like, well, you get to decide that. There's yes. room for everybody's interpretation. Yes, absolutely right. And in fact, the, the, the movies that you were referring to were referred to as the man with no name movies, right? And this is a common thing that happens. I think of not just the Sergio Leone movies, but Pale Rider, for example, right? Where you're, you're uh, who is this guy, right? I mean, you know, the preacher they refer to him as, right? And you don't know where he came from. You don't even know if he's real, right? And then you find out that he has all these bullet holes in him, right? These scars. And, and you're thinking, well, where did that come from? And High Plains Drifter, Right, this force that just kind of comes into this town, wreaks havoc, takes revenge, and then disappears again. And you just don't know why, where did he come from? Why is he here? What's going on? Right. So it, it, it speaks to this issue of, you know, ambiguity and lack of identity in a, in a sense. Right. And, and not needing everyone to know his name, both yes. on screen and off. One of the elements that 
jumped out at me. I mean, I read this, but he produces a lot of his movies along with yes. directing them. It's a tremendous amount of work. And unlike most producers and directors, his name is not in the opening credits. The name of the mm -hmm. production company is. It says it's a Malpaso yes. production. But you don't see yes. his name until the very end. He doesn't feel the need to wave the flag of like, hey, everyone, pay attention to the fact that me, 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 me. Yes. Same with his work with the camera. I can't think of a single shot in any movie of his that I've seen where your attention is drawn to the fact that somebody is directing the film. And that's not inherently a bad thing. I mean, we'll get to that when we talk about someone like David Fincher. And I could say the same thing about Stanley Kubrick. Some directors, there's, there's a virtuosity in what they're doing. Yes. And that's a big part of what's so enjoyable about the movie. Not the case with Clint Eastwood. It's much more right. subtle and gentle. Yes, he, yes. He you, you don't... Yes, you, you don't see, you don't come across a clip that, you know, you might not know what the movie is, but you'd say, oh, that's Eastwood, right? right. Which, to your point, you do with a Fincher or Stanley Kubrick or uh, Martin Scorsese and, you know, these sort of people who have very distinct styles. Great. So there's this humility to Eastwood that, you know, everybody talks about and that uh, certainly shows in his movies, in his directing style, but highly, highly effective. And I think he's he won the uh, Academy Award for Best Director twice with two of the movies we're going to talk about here, Unforgiven and Million Dollar Baby. So, yeah, that's really helped shape people's, kind of reshape people's sense of him as not just an action star. And yet, even then, having won a bunch of Oscars for two movies that are not only lauded for being the best movie of the year, but have stood the test of time. You know, people look yes. back on those. Nobody says, oh, it's a shame that that movie got it. It wasn't all that. It was all for po politics or anything like that. Unforgiven and Million Dollar Baby are still considered very, like, some of the best movies ever. And yet, you're still not going to see them on too many people's lists of the great film directors. Right. There's still a modesty to the way he comports himself and the way he's considered. Yeah. And he's an icon. And for a number of years, he was the world's number one box office star. And so if anyone has the right to wave the flag of how great I am, it's him. Yes. And he never has, to my knowledge. I, I, I completely agree, right? So I, I was thinking again prior to this podcast, is there anybody in the history of film that has had that large an impact or a scope of acting, directing, producing, film scoring, and in addition, just being a cultural icon as a, as a human? I mean, he's, he's not just... I, I was going to call him a great actor. I don't know it would go that far, right? I mean, I think he's had some great performances, right? I think he is a great director, but he's also a movie star. And, you know, in, 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 the, in the way of a Humphrey Bogart or a John Wayne or, or that sort of cultural character, I can't think of anybody else who has had that combination of skills in the movie industry. I, I don't know. Is there anybody you'd put up in the same category that way? Maybe Woody Allen. Mm. And mm -hmm. unlike Woody Allen, Clint Eastwood hasn't disgraced himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not yet. He's only 91. So, you know, <laughs> you're absolutely right. In fact, I'll tell you a story because I know um, I actually have a friend who knows Clint Eastwood. Okay. And met him in a bar in Las Vegas, just by accident, ended up sitting next to him, struck up a conversation with him, and they ended up becoming friends. Right. And if I remember the story, the reason that Clint Eastwood got his last divorce is because his wife at the time wanted to do a reality show. And he just said, you know what? I want no parts of this, right? I do not want to go through the humiliation of having this happen in my house. Absolutely not. And ended up getting divorced. So there is this, this degree of personal dignity that he comports himself with, I think. Again, at least so far. And this sense of, and this is a nine-ish thing, as Russ Hudson describes it, don't mess with me. Yes. I like my privacy. You know, he's never lived in Hollywood. He lives in Northern California, which as far as Hollywood is considered, might be the same as living in Tasmania. Yes. And he maintains a residence there in Carmel. He was mayor, a mayor for a couple of years in the 80s. Yes. But he'll commute to L.A. He'll work in L.A. But he's never been a playboy. You know, he's never been Warren Beatty or anyone like that, right. like a Hollywood player. He's never been a tabloid celebrity. He likes his right. privacy and he likes his autonomy, which is something I've read again and again about what is 
film sets are like. With Westerns, they would often construct the entire set far from Hollywood. They wouldn't do it on the sound stages. They wouldn't do it on the back lot. And he produces with his own company. Warner Brothers distributes the movie, but he makes it. He brings it in ahead of schedule, under budget, so the executives are never breathing down his neck. He's got his own crew. He works with a lot of the same people from movie to movie. Yes. They get each other. Yes. There's a comfort on set, which he said is really important to him. He wants to feel safe. He wants to feel comfortable. And don't bother me. Don't mess with me. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that he wouldn't want a camera crew and a boom operator in his living room monitoring private conversations and private moments and bring the world into, like, here's his bed. Here's his bathroom. Here's an right. argument he's having with his wife. Like, no, no thanks. I don't need that. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So uh, before we go on, uh, now again, um, we're not going to spend as much time as we did last season describing the Enneagram types, right? So the, the, the goal for season one of this podcast was to do kind of a deep dive into the types and the instinctual biases through the prism of a movie. And now what our goal is, is, you know, okay, you kind of get what a nine is, and we're going to, you know, I'm going to ask you in a minute, TJ, to describe the nine uh, just as a refresher for people. But we're, we want to direct you to places to experience this energy of these different types, right? That's our goal here. So if you really want to develop a deeper understanding of nines in a more complex way, go and look at these movies that we're talking about. Okay. So uh, with that said, TJ, tell us what it means to be an Enneagram type nine. Yeah, so here's a brief sketch of what nines are like. The, the strategy, as you mentioned, is striving to feel peaceful. So the, the average picture of a nine is somebody who's pleasant, easygoing, likable, very easy to like. They tend to put people at ease. People feel safe about them. They often have a really non-judgmental air. They are often able to see from multiple perspectives. So at their best, they can make really good mediators like that. They tend to be low maintenance and quite often self-deprecating. They don't take themselves too seriously. The maladaptive version of this strategy, they can discount themselves. You know, the self-deprecating humor can go a little too far to the point that they really, you know, pour water on their own fire. They can become pushovers, They're not asserting themselves when they really should. They just might go along with whatever, even if it's something they don't really like. And when they're doing that, they kind of disappear into an inner sanctum. They can, yeah, they can check out. And anesthetize themselves against the world in any number of ways. It might be with television, it might be with drugs, it might be with hobbies, it might be with you know, any number of things. Food, they can ignore problems, they might sleep too much, uh, they can become couch potatoes. Or they might be really active, but still checked out of their lives. And the more adaptive version, they're actively bringing about peace. They're stepping into conflicts to settle them. And there's no difference between their inner and outer life. They're in tune with their own feelings. What you see is what you get. They work through their feelings and anxieties in their bodies. And they're not afraid to assert themselves. And they can step into their greatness and give the world the gift of their own talents and abilities and point of view. Great. So uh, a couple of points to keep in mind as we go forward, because they're going to come up when we talk about the movies, is number one, the connecting points, right? So we, you know, we like to talk about the connecting points of each of the Enneagram types, meaning on the Enneagram diagram, each point is connected to two others. And the point nine is connected to points three and six, which indicates that there's a interplay of dynamics between the strategies at those points, right? Point six is striving to feel secure. Point three is striving to feel outstanding. And we can think of the point nine, who is striving to feel peaceful, as someone caught in the tension 
between those points of this need for security and this need to feel outstanding in some way, but not want to look like I'm trying to be outstanding, right? So this is one of the big, you've touched on the the self-deprecation and the humility of the nine. And one of the reasons is because they don't want to be seen as that you know, person who's exhibiting too much of the strategy at point three and talking about how wonderful they are, right? Even if, as you said earlier, they have every right to, you know, to, um, uh, to, to toot their own horn. Okay, so there's that dynamic tension between these two things and also the uh, the instinctual biases we want to talk about really quickly. So we use the terminology preserving, navigating and transmitting and the interplay of the strategy with the instinctual biases creates a particular subtype. Right. So we have the uh, the preserving nine who's more self-contained and change resistant character. We have the navigating nine who is more of a kind of uh, fluid blending in harmony seeking character and then we have the transmitting nine which is a more expressive and assertive version of the nine often mistaken as a three or something else right because they don't have that stereotypical affect of the nine of being sort of withdrawn you know or or passive they can be expressive and outgoing people and i think in real life Eastwood is this transmitting nine, right? And when you see interviews with him, he's engaging, he's expressive. You can tell, you know, even though he's humble, there's a part of him that likes the, the limelight, right? I mean, you, you don't step up and, you know, make, you know, it's a 70-year career uh, being in front of camera if you don't have some urge to transmit, right, and be noticed, okay? So um, we should say that he's humble for a Hollywood actor, okay? You know, <laughs> that sort of humble so, for a world icon. Yeah. For a world icon, yes. And, uh, you know, I remember an interview with uh, Barack Obama when he was, um, I don't know if he had become president yet or was running for president still, and somebody asked him about humility and he said, or about his ego, and he said, look, you don't run for president if you don't have an ego, right? So, you know, it's the same thing. You're not going to be a world Hollywood, you know, a world acting icon and, you know, movie icon if you don't have some ego. But it doesn't show itself to, to the point we've made earlier, okay? So now what's interesting about this is it creates kind of a, we'll call it impure movie characters as far as type is concerned, right? Because it's kind of this blend of a lot of it is kind of the blend of the preserving nine right uh which is i don't want to change i want to be left alone you know i just want to go home and you know have my routines and this transmitting thing which is this need for expression right what you don't see any of is the navigating nine in clint eastwood or his movies right there's never this desire to be part of a group right there's never this desire to blend in to seek his identity with someone else, right? Um, so it's always this tension between the transmitting and preserving in his characters. Thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting because one of the one of the things that came up is that he often uses the same production people mm-hmm. in movie after movie. And I just today spoke with a friend who had a small role in Unforgiven. We zoomed and oh, I was asking, wow. him, okay, what was that like? She was one of the girls at Greeley's. Oh, wow. So she described being on set with him, and there's a number of stories that'll come up with that, but one of the things in reference to what you just mentioned is theoretically having your crew is a navigating thing. Having like your team that comes in Mm -hmm. and we all get each other and we all know who each other is and everything. She said it was all pretty much wordless. Yeah, Everybody did their thing. It was just unspoken and understood. Very interesting. Of like the cameraman knows how Clint thinks. And so does the sound man. And so does the editor. And so do the production people and the set dressers and things like that. And, you know, a lot of them would be brought into location. Unforgiven was filmed in Calgary or just outside of Calgary. Mm. And, uh, you know, he easily could have got local people to do those jobs. Nope, let's bring my people. But not much of a sense of, like, there was a lot of hanging out or a lot of joking around or things like that. It was just quiet, efficient, let's do our thing. Because more than anything else, he was there to make a movie. And he's... Like we said, he's incredibly prolific. He's 91. He's still going as of this recording. He just doesn't seem to run out of stories to tell. He's still transmitting. It's just has this fire inside that's looking to burn rather than, and kind of like we were saying before, not really part of the Hollywood elite in terms of his social life. It doesn't seem he didn't want to use his stardom 
to then become one of the in crowd. Yes. Yes. Not interested. Rather live on his own, do his own thing. And I'll just say regarding the navigating piece. So you're absolutely right about the consistency of the crew, because when you watch, if you watch one of his movies for, say, like a five year period, you'll see these same people cropping up over and over again, the same action. Jeffrey Lewis, for example, you know, from the the 70s Westerns and who played uh, Orville in the orangutan movies. Right. So uh, was in a ton of his movies and then just disappeared. Right. And so there's that period where, you know, you're my guy for a while and then I kind of move on right to something else. But to your point about the socializing on the set, you're right. That's not what he's known for. Right. It's we show up, we do our job and we're not going to go hang out afterwards because I'm going to go golfing or do something alone. You go do what you do and I'll see you at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Right. So really, really interesting character. A couple of facts about Clint Eastwood. Number one, born in uh, 1930 in California, was in the uh, in the service, uh, was a lifeguard while he was in the military. So that was, that was uh, how he served. Then went into acting, gained some fame on the show Rawhide, and then went uh, left television because he wanted to be a film actor and uh, did the Sergio Luna movies like you talked about. TJ, do you think uh, the, the character in Once Upon a Time in America, I'm sorry, not Once Upon a Time in America, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'm thinking of the Quentin Tarantino movie. Right. Um, the uh, Leo DiCaprio character where he gets called to do these spaghetti westerns. Not quite the same story, but seemed kind of influenced by the Clint Eastwood story to me. Yeah, well, it seemed, well, definitely, because Clint Eastwood made that a, a path. Like, those movies were not thought of well before Clint Eastwood started doing them, and they became hits. And when they were released, the critics didn't love them either. But they were sensations of the box office, and they reinvented as well as revitalized the Western. So yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, just like Eastwood, had been a cowboy actor on TV. And then now, oh, you can go to Italy, and you can make these movies. And But they really look like B-movies. They look pretty bad. Yes, yes. Like, I imagine any actor who would have done that, even in a fictional setting, would have hoped that I'm going to just fall into work with a cinematic virtuoso like Leone. And that might not be the case. There were a lot of bad spaghetti Westerns, just like there's a lot of movies of all genres. Yes. Yes. Uh, So anybody who's interested in watching those movies, in particular, uh, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more um, and The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. The first two were remakes of Kurosawa movies, Sanjuro and Yojimbo. I'm correct, right? And uh, I really recommend watching those movies back to back. It's fun to do and fascinating. And when you're watching Toshiro Mifune in the um, the Japanese versions that these mo- these movies were kind of taken from or adapted from, you can see Clint Eastwood in a lot of ways, but an eight-ish version of Clint Eastwood, right? I think Mifune was probably an eight and, uh, you know, plays those characters as an eight. Um, Observations on that, TJ? Yeah, well, Eastwood was a fan of the Kurosawa movies, and as soon as he read the script for A Fistful of Dollars, he recognized that this was a blatant remake of Yojimbo. I don't know that Leone got permission to do that. He might have just said, I'll be taking that. But yeah, his character is much more cool. Yes. Much quieter. Whereas Mifune really just strides through the, 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 the physical set of the, of, the, of the film, much less the story, and yes. makes his presence known. Yes, yes. Uh, Mifune, uh, Mifune stomps. He doesn't glide when he walks, right? He, you know, you can you can feel the ground shaking when Mafune walks down the dusty streets. So, and so you uh, should. He was a yes. fabulous actor, one of the best ever yes. anywhere. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, he used to be referred to as the John Wayne of Japan. Mifune. So much more versatile, I think. I I, I would completely agree, right? Uh, Mifune had much much more range in his uh, in his movies. All right. So uh, let's see, what else is there to say about Clint Eastwood? You know, again, made movies across genres, uh, war movies, musicals, Paint Your Wagon, you know, with Lee Marvin. Not a great idea, you know, quite frankly, whoever decided we should get Lee Marvin to sing. I I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, Directed movies that he was not in, like Mystic River, which is a fantastic film, and uh, a number of others. Made uh, The Bridges of Madison County, which is about as far away from Dirty Harry as you can get, right? Other movies that, you know, come up and still show these themes in The Line of Fire is one of my favorites. And uh, 
a whole bunch more. He has won two Academy Awards. He won the uh, Italian Venice Film Festival Golden Lion Award and was bestowed with two of France's highest civilian honors, the Commander of the Order of Arts and Letters and the Legion of Honor Medal. So, big deal. His directing style. Uh, TJ, you talked a little bit about his directing style already. Uh, anything else you would add to that? Yeah, one of the famous things, my friend Beverly, who was in Unforgiven, absolutely validated what I heard, is he never says action when they're filming. Oh, interesting. He says, go ahead. <laughs> and he never says cut. He says, that's good enough. And he'll, he'll film a rehearsal and quite often uses those. And Beverly wow. said when they did that the first time, well, first of all, he also would direct the actors by saying, you know, he was a bunch of girls in a room, and he said, okay, where do you feel like you would be in this scene? And he would listen to their opinion of like, well, I, I think I'd be on the bed. Okay, let's, let's have you on the bed. I think I'd be standing over here. Okay. And then his cameraman would be there. So it was very collaborative. Something I've heard is that he collaborates with everyone. You know, it's not a sense of I'm the great director. I know what's going on. You are here to serve my vision. Many directors do work like that. Many directors get good results doing that. That's not his approach. Beverly said he also introduced himself to all the women at their trailer. He came <laughs> to their trailer. They came out. Hi, I'm Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, and he knew their names and was genuinely with them, had a moment with them saying he was very happy to meet them. And that right. every actor on the set of Unforgiven had a name, including the non-speaking mm -hmm. ones. So that if he needed to have that person say a line or something, there was never any kind of conversation or negotiation of like, well, we're going to have to raise their pay or... That's just not man at the bar or man number three. Everybody had a name. Everybody was a part of this. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, one more tidbit on Clint Eastwood as a factual matter before we get into the movies. He was originally chosen to play Captain Willard in Apocalypse Now, right? And uh, and said, I yeah, I know. I can. You, if you're if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see the shock on TJ's face here, right? So <laughs> that that role was eventually played by Martin Sheen, and uh, who was brilliant in the role. Martin Sheen was amazing, but imagining Clint Eastwood in that role in Apocalypse Now just uh, is fascinating to me, right? So um, anyway, but he turned it down because he didn't want to spend three months in the Philippines, let alone the year and a half that it actually ended up taking to, to, to make that movie, right? So um, anyway, that, that was one of the more interesting uh, tidbits that I found. So the four movies we're going to talk about here, The Outlaw Josie Wales from 1976, which I saw at the drive-in movie theater and uh, on Route 202 in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, from the back of our 1976 Ford LTD station wagon as a kid. Remember it very clearly. Uh, the second movie is Unforgiven from 1992. And for me, watching these two movies back-to-back -back is to capture the whole scope of Westerns. Right. I mean, from from Alpha to Omega in terms of the epic quality, but also the evolution of, I guess, how one would think about Westerns and violence as one ages. Right. We'll come back to that. There's plenty more to say. Uh, third movie, Million Dollar Baby. 2004. Again, another Oscar winner for Best Picture, as was Unforgiven. And finally, American Sniper with Bradley Cooper who plays a real-life sniper in the Iraq War, uh, directed by Eastwood. Apparently, Eastwood has a quick cameo in a church scene, but is otherwise not in the movie. I even, when I saw it, I, I didn't pick him up, so I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure that I believe that he's actually in it. I have to watch it again more closely, I think. Okay, honorable mention movies we wanted to, to, to call out. Again, to capture the nine flavor, uh, every which way but loose, and Any Which Way You Can, where the movie's made with an orangutan as his co-star, uh, <laughs> which I, I have to tell you, I, I just, as a teenager, loved those movies, man. Saw them multiple times at the drive-in theater. He was warned, do not be in a movie with a monkey. Uh, it won't go well. They were his biggest, most profitable movies right made a huge amount of money on them right uh we've already talked about the man with no name uh movies uh, uh high plains drifter pale rider in the line of fire tj give me give me a quick minute on 
the Clyde movies. The Clyde movies. Yeah, oh, the, the orangutan. The orangutan yeah. movies. Yeah. Well, that was something I'd read. Not only did the studio recommend that he not perform with an orangutan, but no movie studio wanted to make that movie. Period. You know, he plays a trucker who's also a pit fighter, bare knuckle boxer, with a pet orangutan that he won in a fight, and that he falls in love with an itinerant country singer, played by his at the time partner Sandra Locke. He's just a guy who lives in a trailer with his mother and his brother, and his brother drives a tow truck. And he's, on the one hand, the ultimate badass because he wins every single fight. Every single, you know, he goes to quarries or to truck truck lots and things like that, and just fist fights with somebody. And it's these fights seem to exclusively consist of blows to the face. <laughs> and he never loses, but he never gets rancorous about vanquishing an opponent. And in fact, in the climax of Any Which Way You Can, the sequel, the slugfest that is the climax of that movie, I believe it goes for maybe as long as 20 minutes. Yes. 20 minutes of just nonstop punches, mostly to the face. And at the end, how does it end? With him throwing his arm around the shoulder of his opponent and them walking off together. Yes. So as far as like a violent pit fighter goes, it's hard to imagine a nicer guy. And, and at the end of the first one, he actually throws the fight to Tank right. Murdoch. Right. right. Because he looks at all these people cheering. He looks at, so Tank Murdoch is the big fighter that, you know, the big feared fighter that he is going up against. And he Allegedly. realizes, I don't want to be that guy. Right. And so he throws the fight. Right. And I don't and, want to humiliate that guy. And I don't, yeah, exactly right. This guy's a legend to all of these people and I'm about yes. to brutally beat him. And for what? Yes. Yes. And um, you're absolutely right. He walks off uh, as friends with William Smith, uh, the, the character played by William Smith. I'm drawing a blank on the character's name at this point, but William Smith was this great kind of uh, villain in uh during that period uh, late 70s early 80s in a lot of movies and tv shows so great great character actor and All he right. sees plenty of screen time to the orangutan he has yes. no problem with the fact that that orangutan clearly steals the show and there's a number of scenes where he's in the cab of a truck with the orangutan talking to him petting him scratching him even kissing him on the head it's like there's this gentleness to him that uh, you know a smaller version of that came up in an interview i read that he did at the Cannes film festival where a spider was noticed crawling up his shirt and he reached down and he let it crawl on his finger and started talking to it saying, hello, little critter, you like my shirt? And then said to the reporters, I, ha I have great respect for all living creatures. And that was really in mind as I watched him cavort with that orangutan. And just and I can just imagine watching this in the theaters, how, how the audience must have lit up every time that orangutan was on screen. It was great. It was great. Again, I, you know, back then, you know, they were looking at the late 70s, uh, I think 1980, Any Which Way You Can, or uh, the second one, uh, yeah. Any Which Way You Can came out. Uh, 78 was the other one. Drive-in theaters were a big deal, and uh, it was just nothing like going up and sitting out and watching those movies at night. So, All right, so the first real movie we're going to talk about here is The Outlaw Josie Wales. I would say the next to last great epic Western Okay. The last being unforgiven, in, in, in my view. Uh, Westerns had, uh, you, you know, they, again, they were changing from the John Wayne tough guy hero to a more nuanced sort of hero, uh, exemplified by Clint Eastwood's Josie Wales. So the outlaw Josie Wales is about a, a farmer in Missouri whose farm is attacked by uh, Union soldiers called Red Legs. It was kind of a, a band of outlaw soldiers who would go around, you know, raping and pillaging and all those sort of things. So they kill uh, Josie Wales's wife and son, burn down his farm. Uh, so he sets out about getting revenge. Uh, but again, you can tell he's reluctant to do it, right? I mean, he's not, he, he's not, gleefully or enthusiastically he's you know there's no liam neeson energy going on to his quest for revenge here right it's just oh gosh i have to do this uh so anyway he falls in with a band of uh, confederate soldiers uh kind of guerrilla fighters who fight against the union and then they are the war ends and they agree to surrender and they are told 
uh, by their leader, played by John Vernon from uh, also Dirty Harry. He played, I think, the mayor or the police commissioner in Dirty Harry. And he was the dean in Animal House, right? He's got that great voice. He was also in Point Blank with uh, Lee Marvin, one of my all-time favorite movies, right? So uh, anyway, um, so they, they convinced this band to of Confederate soldiers to surrender, tell them they'll get to go live in peace, return to their farms. But of course, it's a setup. They start to kill them. Josie escapes with one of his compatriots who is wounded. They head off. And along the way of trying to, number one, get away, number two, get revenge on you know the people who have done them wrong, pick up a band of interesting sort of misfit characters. Uh, first, Chief Dan George, uh, whose character's name is, I'm trying to remember here, Lone Waddy, an old Native American character. Then they pick up a Native American woman, a stray dog, and then an old woman and her granddaughter, played by the aforementioned Sandra Locke, and make their way to Texas. There, they find, um, they settle in a home. Of course, there are misadventures all along the way, right? Lots of gunshots, right? Uh, There's a bounty on him. So there's lots of gunfights along the way, lots of adventures. But they end up at this farm where they uh, first have an encounter with the Comanche Indians. Uh, We'll come back to the scene with 10 bears, which I think we need to talk about, right? They make peace with the Indians, and then they are attacked by the uh, same Red Lake soldiers who killed his family. And that brings us to the conclusion of the movie, which we will talk about when we get to it, okay? So um, thoughts on The Outlaw Josie Wales as a movie, TJ? Well, wonderful movie. An excellent Western. It's got all the things that are easy to sell to people who love Western. So as you mentioned, there's a lot of gunfights. There's a lot of horses galloping. There's the high stakes of the Civil War. Uh, and then there's just Eastwood's down-to-his-bones badassery in that he can he can fire on multiple opponents at once and kill them. Yeah. Yes. he's So he's, uh, you know, it's obviously not realistic uh, in those gun battles. Uh, Josie has this magic capacity to make bullets go around him, above him, below him. You know, they just, he seems like he's, uh, you know, unable to be pierced by lead or anything else. But, and, you know, his... His skill with the gun is unequaled, right? And uh, there are multiple scenes of him killing multiple people at the same time in gunfights. A theme that we see again in Unforgiven in a very different way. I was compelled by the differences between Josie Wales and William Money when it comes to this. Okay, we'll touch on that when we get to Unforgiven. But again, we see this evolution. Okay, tell me what you saw as nine-ish in the outlaw Josie Wales. Well, first of all, in the opening scene, he's just trying to live his life as a simple farmer. He's got a wife, he's got a son, they've got a farm, he just wants to live peacefully. And that peaceful life is taken away from him, which is the inciting incident for the whole movie. And if not for that, like he didn't want to stir up trouble. He wasn't looking to go out and show the world what what an ace he is with his six guns. He's just a quiet guy trying to live his life peacefully the way everybody wants to, you know, kind of the the modest American dream. Uh, And then later, one of the people that he brings on board is Chief Dan George, who he befriends. And there was something Tom Condon pointed out in his book that as of about 1970, and it might have been with Little Big Man, the portrayal of Native Americans radically changed in Westerns. So before that, they were always presented as whooping savages. simply opponents, somebody to be exterminated, somebody who might kidnap a white woman that then needs to be rescued. Whereas from that point on, they were almost exclusively portrayed as nine. Chief Dan George is probably a nine himself, but yes. they were portrayed as gentle, wise, and in tune with nature. Yes, 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 absolutely. And so, so it was an interesting time um, in the mid-70s, uh, sociologically speaking. Okay, so the Vietnam War had ended soon before that. Okay, so there was this sort of uh, cynicism about government, okay, and that certainly shows in the outlaw Josie Wales. There was the height of the ecological movement, which, again, had something to do with this portrayal of Native Americans, I think, right? There was this growing, uh, Nixon, for 
all of his many, many, many sins and flaws, one of the great things he did was create the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. And when I was a kid, there was this famous commercial of a Native American, you know, you might have seen this, uh, you know, at some point, uh, you know, uh, talking about pollution and the tear coming down his face and, you know, that sort of thing. So, so there was this different sort of mindset. You're absolutely right. This movie captures that in, in a way. Um, and written by a Native American as well. The movie was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really? It, oh, and and just that. submitted as a book and it made the rounds and nobody wanted it. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it's okay. got a perspective of like, okay, oh. here's, and we'll get to this when we talk about the, the Comanche scene. But, yeah, a much more nuanced portrayal of Indigenous yes. Americans. Like, yes. That's a yes. pretty new way to think of people at the time. Yes. Yeah, great point. Something that stood out to me here, and so so what, what I want to share is a couple of kind of thoughts that, again, capture this Niners thing. His catchphrase in the movie was, I reckon so, which was not, it's not yes, it's not no, it's... You know, it's kind of, again, it's a passive way. It's a passive phrase almost, right? So he wouldn't come out and say, you're damn right. He would just say, eh, I reckon so, right? You know, kind of thing, right? And so, you know, so for me, again, capturing this nine-ish sort of quality, okay, of, you know, yeah, okay, in a way, even from this, you know, imposing character. Um, another thing, you know, we always talk about routines, with type nines, you know, particularly how, how they like routines. He had a routine for killing, uh, for gun battles, right? If you remember the scene with the Comancheros and and Chief Dan George is with Sandra Locke behind the uh, the carriage and Josie Wales is up on the hill, you know, with the sun behind him. Do you, re do you remember what uh, Chief Dan George said during that part to Sandra no. Locke? No, okay. So he 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 says to Sandra Locke when he sees Clint Eastwood up on the sand dune, right, facing off against all these bandits, right? He says to her, "Hold on, little lady, hell's coming to breakfast." Right, and then he says, he says, "Yep, he's doing his thing. Sun's behind his back. Now he's going to spit." You know, and Clint Eastwood leans over and spits, right? And then he says, now here he goes. And that's when he starts shooting, starts shooting people, right? So that was, <laughs> that was the, you know, the Josie Wales buildup, you know, ritual, you know, gun, ritual buildup to gunfights. Right? And both so, narrated and in doing so undercut by Chief Dan George <laughs> under the supervision of the director himself. Exactly. Which kind of harkens back to the Clyde movies. They hadn't happened yet, but he just doesn't have a problem with undercutting his own image. Yes. All right. Great. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Again, one of the great scenes for me is the face-off he has with the bounty hunter in the bar in Texas where the guy comes in and uh, there's a $5,000 bounty on, on Josie Wales' head. He asks him if he's a bounty hunter. He says, yeah. And he says, the bounty hunter says, a man's got to make a living. And the great line is, dying ain't much of a living, boy, right? And so, so the bounty hunter leaves, but Josie knows he's coming back, right? And so he's prepared for him. The guy comes in, pulls his gun, Josie shoots him and so forth. But again, there's this reluctance. There's this, I want to give you this opportunity to walk away, right? I'm not going to just, uh, you know, it's not, you're here, I know you want to kill me, so I'm going to kill you first. No, it's not that. It's like, come on, we can work this out, right? You can leave. Okay, so again, it's not what John Wayne would have done, right? Or, you know, a Russell Crowe sort of character, you know, that sort of thing, okay? Yeah, it's, so. he's intimidating them with subtlety. Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, great. There's another thing, too, about this, um, the way 
again, we've talked about how things sort of happen to him. He collects these people passively, right? I mean, these people, Dan George, you know, the, the lone Wadi, you know, just kind of starts following along. Okay, I'm going to travel with you, right? And then the Indian woman just travels along with them and the dog, and then they rescue the the, the, the old lady and the, the young woman. And well, I guess we got to take her too, right? And so there's this, you know, again, it's things happen to me. Uh, and a reluctance to it too. He tries to, yes. he's trying to get rid of them, you know, don't mess with me. I just want to be on my own. I don't want more. But then eventually it's like, all right, Okay. Yes, absolutely. So there was another thing that caught me as very nineish that we didn't touch on that I want to say is he had a tendency to take naps in what others <laughs> might have considered to be stressful situations, right? <laughs> Tell us about that, TJ. Yeah, nines do. Uh, if there's a tendency among nines regarding sleep, it's to sleep a little too much. Hmm. And sometimes in situations of conflict, I have known nines who describe falling asleep while their partner is arguing with them. Mm-hmm. I've also known nines who can, you know, some of us take a long time to get to sleep. We need to be in bed. We need to be in just the right position. I've known nines who the only thing that changes is the position of their eyelids. Mm-hmm. And I am out. I am in my happy place. And so there's a couple of great scenes in uh, Josie Wales where when the uh, soldiers are coming on the raft across the Missouri River, I think it's the Missouri River, and you know, he knows, okay, I can't run. The, the, the other guy that's with him says, come on, Josie, we got to do something. And, uh, you know, he goes, eh, it'll be okay. And he knows he has time. So he <laughs> lays down, leans against a tree, pulls his hat over his head and takes a nap, you know, until they get closer. And then he uh, shoots the rope that they're using to pull the raft across and sends them all down the river, right? And the other thing is after Chief Dan George's character tried to ambush him, the first time they meet, right? So here he's going to collect the bounty on Josie Wales's head. He tries to sneak up on him and, you know, or, or he's planning to sneak up on him, but Josie gets the drop on him. And then as Lone Wadi is talking, Josie lays down, pulls the hat over his face and goes to sleep <laughs> right in front of this guy who was just trying to ambush him for the bounty, right? So a funny, funny, uh, funny pattern in the movie that we saw there. Okay. A couple of things. So tell us, we mentioned, uh, we've referred to the conversation between uh, Josie Wales and Ten Bears, uh, the um, Comanche chief. Uh, Tell us about that, TJ. Yeah, he rides up to, uh, I would say, at least 25 Comanche warriors by himself with guns. And it's the archetypal Western situation where the lone cowboy faces superior numbers and, of course, decimates them. But that's not what happens. (laughs) Instead, he negotiates coexistence. Yes. And he says, you know, he'll put the Comanche mark on his house to show that they're welcome. And, you know, when they're in the area, they're welcome to slaughter some of the cattle that he's making. And he ends up making a blood oath with them. And he turns them into allies, which is a very nine thing. First of all, for a white cowboy to see Native Americans as human beings, period, much less to see them as potential allies, somebody else with autonomy, with dignity, with humanity, that it's much more beneficial if we live together. I have no conflict with you. We yes. don't need to kill each other, but I'm ready to die if that's what's going to happen. Yes. And in fact, Ten Bears, who's a very imposing character, and, you know, clearly a fierce warrior, tells him, I have no problem with you. I know that you've been fighting the government, so you may go in peace. And Josie says, I reckon not. Right. I have nowhere to go. So he's basically saying that. I might go in physical peace, but I'm not going to find inner peace if I leave here. I can't just let you kill my friends, you know, the way that I know you want to do. No, so that's not peace for me. And I'm willing to die to maintain that feeling of peace. So, which was very interesting. It was was curious to me that those were the the words that they, they used. Okay. So, yeah, and the Comanche uh, have two hostages buried up to their necks. So yes. this is not an idle threat. This is not a, <laughs> a theoretical situation. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how terrifying that was to me, you know, to see those two guys buried up to their heads like that. It is, for me, my ultimate fear, right? So, yeah. So mm-hmm. Josie was taking a big old risk here, right, because they weren't going to kill him easy if they were going to kill him. One, you know, final thing. So, you know, the big action comes. Uh, Josie kills his enemy. And uh, we didn't mention the character of Fletcher, again, played by John Vernon. We did mention that character, but we didn't say that he was kind of leading the search 
for Josie Wales, right? So he was helping the soldiers hunt him because he knew as long as that guy's out there, I am not safe because he thinks that I, you know, murdered his, you know, his, his friends. So uh, he led the search and they meet each other at the end. Everybody, you know, all of Josie's friends start referring to him as Mr. Wilson, right? Even though John Vernon knows, or I'm sorry, Fletcher knows that that's Josie Wales. You know, we, we, you know, we, we fought war together for three years. You know, I know who you are kind of thing, but he's pretending that he doesn't. Uh, to remember the conclusion of that, how that sort of unfolds at the end. Yeah. Fletcher agrees to play along with the fiction that Josie Wales is Wilson and leads the other bounty hunters to believe that as according to these people's testimony, he did indeed die. And he says to him, I think, I don't believe that he's dead. There's no way that three people could have killed Josie Wales or two people because they said that he, you know, uh, got killed by two gunfighters. There's no way that two men could have killed Josie Wales. I'm going to go look for him down in Mexico and I'm going to tell him that this war is over. And to which Clint Eastwood replies, I reckon so. Okay. I guess we all died a bit in that damn war, he says. So anyway, so that's that's the end of Josie Wales. Again, Josie Wales, big, epic Western, but the heroic sort of Western. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time. I'm TJ Daw, and this season, my co-host Mario Sakura and I will be ignoring will be ignoring the Enneagram. <laughs> Why don't I try that again?